Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Frank Buckley is professor at George Mason's Scalia School of Law. He joined us a while back to discuss his book, Curiosity and Its 12 Rules for Life. Today, he joins us to discuss a new book, Progressive Conservatism, How Republicans Will Become America's National Governing Party. A bold prediction, uh, Frank. Welcome, Professor Buckley. Thank you for having me. All right. uh, An opening question comes up uh, right off in the book. What is the, quote, dream of Republican virtue? It's something I push in the book. And the idea is this. At a time when one party has really given up on America, on the idea that there's something noble about America, the other party should be the unifying party that defends all that's noble in our country, going back to the beginning. And going back to the beginning means recovering the founder's dream of Republican virtue, which is a country led by people dedicated to the common good of the country in a personally non-corrupt, disinterested manner. We've given up on that. We need to recover it. You you refer to Donald Trump on this issue in a, in a, a, a related way uh, when you... Sort of, sort of talk about one of the dangers to Republican virtue being, quote, the Republicans, the Republican Party's fatal wish to please. What is that? Well, it's something that Trump conspicuously didn't have. But, but to, to get this out front right away, while I was with Trump at the beginning and helped shape the ideas behind the campaign, I think the man is past his prime, and the party has to dispense with him. He's an embarrassment. And after January 6th, he has no place in American politics. He's hovering over us like a kind of exterminating angel. But the proper thing to do is to embrace the ideas that he brought to the party while not bringing the man himself into the conversation. Uh you mentioned actually we were we, we saw each other uh, uh, recently. You mentioned that the the Trump campaign asked you to uh, contribute to forming his inauguration speech. Yeah, uh, I was there uh, writing a bunch of speeches together with my wife, and 
I think I cottoned on to a number of issues that became major themes of the campaign. In 1994, for the first time, Americans, when polled, said they no longer thought their kids would have it as good as they did. That's huge. It represents the death of the American dream. It represents the idea of an immobile class society. Uh, I did presentations uh, before the campaign with Trump and his kids, and I said, this has got to be a major issue. It became a major issue of the campaign. Trump gave a speech on the subject. The Washington Post said it was the best speech he had given. Uh, I mentioned other themes such as immigration and health care. The important point about Trump is to recognize that he represented a repudiation of about 60 years of American right-wing policies. He was not a right-winger, right? He was rather what I call a progressive conservative. He was someone who had discovered the sweet spot in American politics, which is socially conservative, economically middle of the road. Uh, and that placed him in a solid Republican tradition, including Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, and then Trump. So there are cycles in American politics. And the way it works is after each one of these leaders, there's a right-wing reaction. Our right-wing reaction after Eisenhower was 60 years of National Review right-wing conservatism, uh, Goldwater right uh, you know, issues, um, the Koch brothers, Lee Atwater and the Southern Strategy, Donald Rumsfeld, I call them the Altamont rock concert of the Republican Party. <laughs> they were people who were displaced by Trump and we don't want them back. Uh, you, so you, you'll, Trump gets credit for that. Trump gets credit for that, but the guy was uh, not a not a good president in the sense that he knew which levers to pull. He also surrounded himself with some of the worst people in American politics. You know, uh, people who made your flesh creep, like uh, uh, Manafort, uh, Cohen, even Steve Bannon. That wasn't the way to go. It didn't start out that way. It turned out that way. He faced initially two years of a right-wing Congress that didn't want to do what he wanted. And thereafter, we had the lies of the Russian collusion story. So he really got very little done. He was, in that sense, a failed president. What was, what, would you put uh, Paul Ryan, who was the Speaker of the House in those first two years, what, does Paul Ryan, that, that's, that's, was that kind of the last gasp of National Review conservatism? I think it was. I mean, the fellow's still around. Um, really, it was the Romney defeat in 12, 2012, which I, I think was the last gasp. But, you know, we, we, we wanted things done. We wanted tax reform that would not amount to simply a present to the ultra rich. Uh, and we didn't get that because of Paul Ryan. Uh, I told Trump early on that Canadian Medicare was not as bad as people said, but we could do better. Trump repeated that line explicitly, but he couldn't do anything like decent health care reform. And Americans want that. I mean, that would have been a winning issue for us. So the Trump agenda was a, an agenda postponed. And what we're waiting for is someone who gets the idea that this is not going to be a reversion to the old right wing. Rather, what this has got to be is, is a form of progressive conservatism. 
And I, I really want to claim the mantle of progressivism here because in doing so, I'm copying Lincoln, of course, Teddy Roosevelt, a big progressive, and Eisenhower in a little noted comment said, the Republican Party must be a progressive organization or it is sunk, right? So Ike was the guy who defeated Bob Taft. The right-wingers uh, in the party and all their think tanks are people who bemoan the fact that, that Taft was defeated by Eisenhower. No, I say Eisenhower is the future. You proceed to a, a series of, of issues, political issues, broadly speaking, and then lay out what a progressive conservative take is on that. And, you know, people will first hear progressive conservatism as, as an oxymoron, right? But your, your goal is, no, 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 we can change the thinking. So if I take the issue of inequality, one that you bring up, what would a progressive conservative maybe maybe what is the national review <laughs> uh take on inequality what is what is the leftist the liberal progressive take on inequality and then i, I know this is a big question but and then what is your what is the progressive conservative approach to inequality well first of all it, th this is not an oxymoron it's a well understood term in countries like england for example as represented by people like Burke and Israeli. Um, the progressive conservative is a nationalist, like Israeli. And, and so Trump was a nationalist. But I don't think that the national conservative movement, the NatCons, quite get it. I think many of them are simply right-wingers uh, who picked up a new label without knowing what it's all about. I think if you're a nationalist, that implies a degree of sympathy, of empathy, of solidarity and fraternity with the less well-off people. Eisenhower certainly had that. I mean, the point about Eisenhower is he decided, I'm not going to try to undo the New Deal. Uh, even Reagan didn't try to do the, undo the New Deal. So there, there, are, there are ways in which one can help people who are less well-off in America. And one of them would be a form of for example, catastrophic medical insurance, right? So, you know, I offered some positive recommendations right at the end of the book, and, and one of them is precisely that. Uh, Americans are worried about going into the hospital and walking out bankrupt. We could do something about that. Yeah. You mentioned the four quadrants of American politics, and the sweet spot would be, what we said, sort of... Uh, uh, moderate economic, uh, uh, not free market, but we, you know, an economy with certain, certain controls and, 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 uh, safety nets plus social conservatism. Then we've got in the other quadrants, different, different versions of that. Why have the two parties, I mean, the democratic party goes to the wrong quadrant the Republican Party traditionally has recently has gone to the wrong quadrant. Why don't they see that that fourth quadrant is the where Trump ended up, at least during the campaign? Why don't they see that's the winning formula? Yeah, I wrote this up for the Wall Street Journal back in 2017. Um, the upper left quadrant, socially conservative, economically middle of the road or liberal 
is precisely progressive conservatism. And it's the sweet spot in the sense that it represents where the majority of American voters are. So up to now, what we've had is a battle between a economically and socially left-wing Democratic Party and an economically and socially right-wing party, or in the upper right quadrant, which the left always won, hmm. right? And, and, you know, so what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Paul Ryans. I'm talking about Ted Cruz circa 2016, right? These were the designated losers. They failed to grasp the idea of progressive conservatism and, you know, and I'm afraid even now uh, a lot of people don't get it. I mean, I don't think they really understand the history of the GOP. That's, that's why I spent some time talking about people like Teddy Roosevelt and, uh, and Eisenhower. I, I had photos in, of the book of, of all of these guys, but photos of them as Westerners. So mm. an important way of understanding this is to realize there's a Western component to republicanism, which is progressive. It's the progressivism of Frederick Jackson Turner, of the equality movement in Wisconsin, of the initiatives and referenda in California. It's the idea that the American people are basically pretty good. And if you let democracy work, they're going to come out with the right result in the end. That's progressive conservatism. It's precisely what Disraeli was all about. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's what the great names in conservatism are all about. And it's what the GOP has historically been, what it's been about when it won. You, you imply that, or maybe you state outright, that one of the aims of progressivism going way back is to root out corruption from the halls of power. And you, you go on to say here in the book that the United States are one of the most corrupt countries in the first world. What are the main forms of corruption afflicting us today? Well, it's not so much ordinary people donating money to a political party. It's really K Street and the lobbyists. They're enormously influential. And the sad thing about the GOP is it's given up the issue to the left. Well, you know, the, the left is the party of corruption, you know, generally. And, and so it should be a GOP issue, but we've given it up to the left. They're allowed to preen in their pretended virtue, whilst all the time they're the people getting the big bucks in terms of super PAC money and the like, um, you know, which, which, which is fine. But why can't we do something like propose an end to lobbyist type corruption? Uh, AOC and Cruz, for example, proposed a lifetime ban on congressmen serving as lobbyists after they retire. You know, the, the problem with the term limits party is they wanted to limit people down to one term in Washington or two terms. That's not the problem. The problem is how once they get to Washington, they never leave it. Hmm. Right. They, they, they leave Congress, they go to work as lobbyists where they, where they make a lot more money. And knowing they're going to work for a lobbyist, they favor the lobbyists while they're in office. So, you know, Congress turns out to be a farm team for K Street. 
So we can do we we can limit lobbyist contributions to campaigns. We can. Did, I mean, did you did you like AOC's proposal? Yes, I did very much so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, it was AOC, Ted Cruz, a, kind of a strange bedfellows alliance. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, take it. Uh, this is one reason why you say the left quote you, your term has betrayed the very people it pledges to support. Give us an example, another example, I should say. Well, um, you, you know, African-Americans complain about structural racism. And there's something to be said for that. But the question is, who built the structure? Hmm. Right. So, you know, you can fault Trump on a number of things, but you can't complain about how African-Americans have fared if you look at the statistics from the Bureau of Labor, right? I mean, he did rather well by them. Their problem has been failing schools, which employ white teachers, but you know, really do an enormous disservice to the students who are often African-American. Then you have immigration, which represents a wealth transfer from the poorest to the richest of Americans, and which particularly hard hits African-Americans. So these are things favored by the Democratic Party, and they betray, uh, you know, the poorest of Americans, the people that ostensibly the Democrats are supposed to help. And and it, it amounts to really the most uh, vile kind of hypocrisy on their part. So you, we should be calling them out. We're, you know, the, the GOP tends to be too polite about these issues. What we need is someone who can, with a smile on his face, condemn these people as utter self-serving hypocrites. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you, you have a lot of disdain for this particular identity of the worldly, cosmopolitan, globalist, sophisticate. Are they all over D.C.? Yeah, they're all over D.C. They're, they are the top 10% of, of Americans who are well off. They are the lawyers of D.C. and the lobbyists of K Street. Um, they feel a greater sense of identity with people at the left bank of Paris than they do with people in Oklahoma, right? Um, mm-hmm. If, if it were the case, therefore, that Americans, middle Americans were doing poorly, that was a matter of indifference to the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party honorably in the past was a party of the economically disadvantaged, but it abandoned the economically disadvantaged and became the party of social, left-wing social causes. Hmm. And it joined with progressives. I mean, one of the reasons why I want to appropriate the word progressive is because It's a good old-fashioned Republican word going back to Teddy Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower. But in in addition, 
there's nothing whatsoever progressive about a party that's reverted to the pre-modern battles based on race and, and, and class, race particularly. That, that, that's what? an important point, Frank. That we, we've got to see those identity categories as actually kind of reactionary, not progressive, right? Exactly right. Yeah. What is progressive is that which people on the left and some people on the right condemn, which is the idea of ethical universalism. To be a universalist is to say everyone counts equally, not like lives matter, but you know, brown lives matter, white lives matter, all lives matter in the end, right? Everyone counts for one. Nobody counts for more than one. Yeah. You, you talk a lot about nationalism, uh, Frank, several terms you use. Uh, one distinction is between vertical nationalism and horizontal nationalism. What do you mean by that? Well, vertical nationalism is the idea, the kind of MAGA idea of making America great. And I think a lot of people... A lot of Trump supporters in their blogs are vertical nationalists in that sense. They want, they, they want for example, the biggest military in the world. And, and we've got it. I mean, we spend more money on the military than the next, I think, seven countries put together, five of whom were our, our, our allies, right? Uh, horizontal nationalism, by contrast, is the idea that if you're a nationalist, you have to have a sense of fraternity and look after those people who are left behind in America. That's precisely what Disraeli was all about. It's what progressive conservatives are all about. It's what distinguishes a progressive conservative from simply a right-wing Republican. Yeah. You, you also use the term, quote, liberal nationalism. Uh, wh- what is that? Well, if we are nationalists, we are faithful to the American ideas expressed by the founders. Now, you know, a lot of right-wingers have rejected that. They talk about um, the problems of, uh, the, you know, copying from the left-wing critique of Enlightenment values. They reject the idea of, of universal values. So they mimic what the left has said about um, ethical universalism, for example, the idea that we're all in this together. Um, and in doing so, I think they're, they're enormously unfair to the founders. I mean, y- yes, I, I agree with them entirely when they talk about the horrors of drag queen story hours in, in elementary school. But to blame that on George Washington is merely absurd. <laughs> <laughs> George Washington. That, that, that brings us back to, let me come back to the issue of Republican virtue. Look, Frank, what do we need to worry about Republican virtue for? Let's just have a bunch of self-interested individuals who are going out in the market and doing the best they can for themselves. And the market will, uh, on its own, sort of temper those selfish passions uh, and we'll get we'll get the society we deserve. Why do we even need to talk about virtue? You're describing uh, what was uh, almost the official ideology of the old Democratic Party, huh. and you're also describing Madison's view about politics, right? Which is a competition amongst different interest groups, 
And the idea is, yeah, it's, it's messy, but we don't care about it if everybody has a seat in the table and they all bargain. And nobody's going to be really hard done by if, if everybody gets to vote. And, and as I say, that was roughly what the Dems thought. It's called pluralism. America is being composed of a bunch of plural interest groups that bargain amongst each other. And, and it took a great degree of, uh, it, it took enormous blinders to believe that that was going to work, right? I mean, you had the inner city Catholic and the Southern Baptist, and you had the African-American and you had the, the white racist, and, and it didn't work out terribly well for a lot of people, right? It didn't work out terribly well for African-Americans. And then, and then there was a great awakening when the Dems realized this wasn't working, right? But they didn't give up on pluralism. What they did is they said, yeah, we're all a bunch of you know different plural interest groups, but we're going to distinguish between the uh, the saved and the damned. So we've got our categories of people who will look after uh, people of color, sexual minorities, and then we have you know then we have the damned, right? We have the white to heteronormative patriarchy and all that. So we, we've got a we've got this Manichaean view of, of the good guys versus the evil guys. Um, and that's not exactly very morally elevated. I mean, it's contributed to the coarseness of American politics. I think that what Republican virtue means by contrast is you begin with a sense of, yes, your own fallibility, your own sense of sin, but uh, you don't go around casting stones and what you want is a polity in which everybody is treated well. That represents one way, one important theme of the founders I think we put too much emphasis on Madisonian bargaining in the Federalist Papers as an answer to all our problems. And what we've forgotten is the spirit of, 19, of 1776, that is the, the spirit of we're all in this together. We're all going to fight the British. Hmm. This leads to your discussion of a term or an idea or an ideal that has become very prominent among first things, the first things world, the common good. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the, you want us to unite around the common good. What are some of the features of, of that common good? Well, one feature is, uh, let's give the libertarians their due here. One feature is we want an economy that works and uh, that doesn't require our children to live off nuts and berries in the forest, right? You know, we, we want things that are going to work. Um, so the libertarians were right on the rule of law and the excesses of the regulatory state. They were right on licensing requirements. They were right on the degradation of state education and the need for school choice. They were wrong on welfareism, right, and the welfare state. But they were right on so many things, and we should be looking for them and the economists for looks for, for a list of things that work. What we don't want, if we want free market economics, economics is economism. What we don't want is the idea that the way to decide all social issues is simply to refer it to an economist. That's that's not going to get you there. Um, so the common good includes you know, an economy that's going to be good for our kids. But it, it also includes uh, a great many other things. I mean, the, the Dems at this point have become the party of, 
uh, abortion, of euthanasia, of the gays. And while we have nothing against the gays per se, our preferred option is not infertility and death, which is the case for the Dems, but the next generation. We're on the side of what's good for our children. So that's going to include institutions like like the church, which which help civilize people, yeah. um, you know, good schools and the like, um, a moral society. The common good includes obviously a working economy, but includes so much more than that. Yeah. This is where you end. Uh, you go back to the term contract with America. This will be a little different from 1994. Uh, you have 12 pledges uh, in, in the book that make up the contract of America. And you start with what you just said, families. What is, what is a progressive conservative politician supposed to do to, to uphold families, to build family formation on a stronger basis? Well, the best thing is to empower parents with respect to education. So let them choose where the money goes to uh, fund schools. So that involves school choice, both charter schools and much more importantly, parochial schools. Right? Uh, charter schools outperform public schools, regular state schools, but it's real choice that you want here. And in countries that have real choice, which is Europe, kids do much, much better. I mean, we are lagging internationally on any metric with respect to education because our schools are so horrible, both K-12 and university. I, so, think, I think, Frank, that that's, that would be a political winner for a Republican politician this year and in, in 2024, given this interesting resurgence of parents of, of students and what it meant in our state of Virginia, say, last, last fall, that was key to the Yunkin win. Uh, you think a lot, of, a lot of Republican politicians, MAGA politicians, maybe most of all, would jump on the idea of parental choice, following yeah. the money? Absolutely right. I, I, you know, the Yunkin victory was absolutely huge as a, both in Virginia, of course, but but also as a symbol of, of what Republican policies should be with respect to education. So, you know, when the left starts opening up uh, about how the kids belong to the state, that's just toxic. You know, the great thing about the Dems is left on their own, they'll actually say what they believe in. <laughs> right. Yeah, just let them do it. Put them on camera, give them a microphone, yeah. And let them talk, and one one will see. Yes, unpopular opinions will will end up coming yeah. out of their mouths. They're not unpopular in their little worlds, right? The the yeah. places where they circulate. But we, uh, uh, those of us uh, uh, who are uh, conservative, progressive, or or even even uh, even more more than National Review conservative, I think that we. We are more popular than yeah. so many positions on, on the left. Now, why don't more Republican politicians get on these issues? Well, didn't, why didn't they learn something from Trump's victory? Fine. This is, this is our last question, Frank. Yeah. 
Why didn't they learn from Trump's victory? Because Trump so mishandled it in his choice of friends, in his inability to cut deals. This was a great deal maker. He couldn't cut deals. And of course, he was torpedoed by the lies of the Russian collusion story. So he was a failed president and he turned out to be the kind of person he mocked, that is, a loser. I think we have to recognize that as a politician, he was a loser. But that nevertheless, the ideas he brought, ideas of getting rid of a class society, of building mobility, of identifying with that which is most noble in the American tradition, all of these are great ideas and they are, and always have been, Republican ideas. So when they are adopted, as I think inevitably they will be, they will make the Republicans America's natural governing party. The book is Progressive Conservatism, How Republicans Will Become America's Natural Governing Party. Professor Buckley, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.